welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Gregory M. Dickinson, a fellow at the Stanford Law School Program in Law, Science, and Technology. We will discuss his article, Rebooting Internet Immunity, which will be published in the George Washington Law Review. So welcome to the show, Gregory. Thanks, Brian. It's uh, great to be on here and, and chat with you about my article and uh, Section 230 today. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about this because it's a really timely subject and uh, you have a really interesting and I think thoughtful proposal about how to sort of square the circle or thread the needle here in a very contentious area. But for listeners who might not be so familiar with Section 230 or who might think they're familiar with Section 230, but be in reality um, less knowledgeable than they realize, uh, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about what Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act actually does. Yeah, Brian, I think it's a, a great way to start to hone in on what this law is, because it's been such a difficult time to write in this area with with so much debate uh, flying around about about how the law should be restructured. It's, it's good to start with what it what it's designed to be doing. Um, so Section 230 is a law that was passed back in 1996, and it was designed with a, a certain type of website in mind. Uh, the modern uh, Modern sort of website would be somebody like Facebook that's relaying a whole bunch of content uh, created by other people, their users. Uh, but back then they had in mind uh, websites like AOL or, or entities like AOL or service provider, internet service providers that provided access to the internet. And the concern was that with so much third-party created content flowing through their systems, they couldn't possibly hope to look through it all and make sure there was nothing uh, nothing illegal in there. You know, you, you log on to Facebook and you you see all kinds of crazy bozos online saying who knows what. And Facebook uh, could hardly hope to review all of that and make sure there's nothing false in there. And so what Section 230 says is that online entities like Facebook or like Verizon or Twitter um, generally can't be liable for things that their users say or do on their platforms. Uh, and and what that does by immunizing them, it frees them up from this moderation burden to review and, and look over content to make sure that nothing's illegal. Uh, it'd be so expensive to do that that they'd, they'd be out of business uh, from the legal liability. And then the other thing it does is an indirect effect by freeing uh, by freeing online entities not to worry about that. It makes sure that users uh, are able to to say what they like on the internet. It's a kind of a First Amendment protecting law or a First Amendment enhancing law, I guess you might think of it as. Um, if, if Section 230 did not exist, um, online entities like Facebook or Twitter, they might be forced to severely censor user speech because they'd be scared of being liable. Uh, and so they would need to do a very strict review of everything that was said, and, and people wouldn't be able to speak freely on the internet uh, without it. So why was Section 230 important? What did it actually do in practice? So the particular uh, issue that, that Section 230 sprung up to protect was, uh, was Prodigy at the time, the big case. Uh, they they um, hosted a, an online discussion group where there was some, some defamatory material, uh, and they ended up... Uh, um, a court ruled that they could be liable 
uh, for, for uh, defamatory material on their platform. And Congress kind of sprung to action and said, you know, this, this new and emerging internet, you know, you think back to 1996, how much different the internet was then. It felt so new and, and it was so new. And it felt so important that Congress wanted to make sure that people would be able to speak online. Uh, and, and part of the way they did that was by removing uh, potential liability um, for entities like Prodigy for speech by third parties, speech that they didn't write. It was also passed as part of the Communications Decency Act, which which I, I think gets overlooked um, in some of the, the debate now about Section 230. Um, Congress also wanted to make sure that uh, online entities were free to moderate content. Uh, the concern was uh, a, a theory in tort law of uh, ratification by by failure to remove. Uh, and this was a theory that was brought against Prodigy, that Prodigy was liable, um, not just because it hosted the material on its website or on its platform, but that they were liable in part or could be liable in part because they had tried, they had made an effort to censor some material, but yet hadn't removed the content in question. And so the fear was not only what might we be exposing platforms to liability that keeps them from hosting third-party speech, we might actually be discouraging uh, moderation of, of things like uh, um you know, pornography on the internet by, by making online entities worry that if they take any action at all to censor, that they're going to suddenly be liable for the stuff that they, that they fail to catch. Uh, and so those, that was also a purpose of the law. And I think that gets lost in the debate now. Well, it seems like section 230 was really important in encouraging and facilitating the growth and development of the internet in part by reducing liability risk for some of the companies or many all of the companies that were kind of facilitating these new kinds of communications. What, if anything, has changed since then about what the internet looks like and how people use it? Yeah, it, it's very hard to overstate how important Section 230 has been to the growth of the internet. Uh, without it, you, you would have had greater concern about legal liability that, that could very well have stifled innovation. And so Section 230 freed entities not to worry about uh, especially defamation liability, but, but other sorts of liability as well. And so, as you say, it, it had a, a tremendous growth enhancing effect on the Internet. Uh, and part of that was a removal of, of liability. And part of it was just a standardization of laws uh, across all of the states. Without Section 230, um, you would have had online entities subject to the defamation rules of, of every single jurisdiction in the country, which, which in many cases would have protected against these sorts of claims like the, the prodigy case, but uh, it would have been a, a fresh issue of law uh, in each state and it, it could have gone different ways in some states. And so some of it wasn't necessarily changing the law, but making sure it was standardized uh, so that, so that uh, the companies didn't have to worry about analyzing the law of every state. Uh, but you asked also uh, how the internet has changed, um, and the internet has changed by by moving closer and closer to a virtual world that parallels uh, nearly entirely the physical world. Um, so at the time that Section 230 was passed, a lot of what went on on the internet was a lot like pu the publication world, it was a lot like, uh, you know, mass media, television, radio, um, 
magazines, things like that, but in electronic form. And so people could publish material faster and better, but it, it looked kind of the same. You'd have uh, third parties uh, author some content and then uh, somebody like Encyclopedia Britannica or Prodigy would would get access to that content and bring it to their users. And so you had this tripartite model of consumers, of intermediaries, you know, the, the, uh, the prodigies and the AOLs. Uh, and then you had, um, you know, essentially authors and publishers, just like you do in the print world. And that's, that's not the only thing that was on the internet. Uh, eBay was just starting up in, in 96 and 95. So was Amazon. And so you had this beginning of e-commerce, uh, but what Congress was mostly thinking about and what mostly existed was something that looked a lot like the publication world. And so that's how um, Section 230 regulates it, is it, it talks of authors and it, it talks of intermediaries. It, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't cover every sort of entity that, that might exist in the physical world because it's, it's talking about publication uh, by and large. And what has changed is that now you can do anything online. You, you can, uh, you know, find an app to do just about anything you'd ever want to do. You can buy anything you want to do online. You can, can uh, find, uh, find a way to accomplish nearly anything that you can do in the physical world, in the virtual world. And Section 230 isn't nuanced enough, in my view, to deal with um, that complete virtual world. It's designed for a more limited virtual world. Well, so it seems like in recent years... An increasing number of people have been calling for the amendment or or even the repeal of Section 230. Why do they think it's a problem? Why do they think it needs to be changed? And what do they point to as sort of examples of problems they see associated with Section 230? So there are a, a number of areas uh, where people have proposed uh, reforming Section 230. And that's part of why the, the debate is so contentious, actually, because everybody has their own idea of what the most important problems are, uh, and some people see problems where others don't. Um, the, the way that I would kind of carve up the world of Section 230 reform uh, is, is like this. Uh, there are, are some, the biggest, uh, I guess the biggest debate that we're seeing in Congress right now has been uh, about how much moderation goes on. Um, some will see a lot of misinformation out there uh, about the election or about COVID-19. Uh, we'll see uh, really, really harmful and despicable content, things like revenge porn or, or sexual abuse content or, or terrorism content. And they'll say, um, we need uh, laws in place to force um, moderation of content online. Uh, right now it's all voluntary because you can't of course be liable for other other or for users content and so it's all voluntary and so some people will say well it, it's time to really force this moderation and, and make sure it's really happening um, on the other side of that same that same debate is some folks typically uh, typically conservatives it's been recently uh, will say well actually we also have a problem with um, too much moderation maybe politically biased moderation that becomes a problem if you have, um, you know, maybe a near monopoly power or close to it in this in this industry. You have the big players, Facebook and Twitter, and if if that's the the only or very clearly the best way to to speak to get your views out there, if that if any moderation decisions are made with a, a politically biased 
point of view, that, that becomes problematic because you can't have a free discourse in the way that you'd want to. And so people see problems there too. Um, and I, I think those are, are really important issues uh, and, and maybe for greater minds than mine. So that, that huge issue that's going on in Congress right now is something that I stay away from by and large in, in my recent work on this. Um, and instead, I focus on um, another problem that I see that, that, to me at least, is more addressable in the near term w- without congressional action or, or maybe uh, with smaller congressional action. And that area is a disconnect between the way that the law treats virtual entities and, and real world entities. Uh, and this comes up especially in um, product liability contexts or sometimes creators of online products will be able to escape um, escape lawsuits that, that they'd normally be forced to defend for defects in their products uh, and also for some online marketplaces, uh, things like arms or not things like armslist.com and amazon.com that, that are engaging in, in, seemingly the sale of goods, but are able to categorize it as um, relaying of communications by third-party sellers. And so uh, avoid some of the the traditional obligations on online marketplaces. I have a a good example, probably the best example to bring this to light is a a set of cases that were brought against Snapchat uh, over the the last year or so. Um, So Snapchat has this this app uh, for for those who may not have used it, you can you know hold up your phone, take a selfie of yourself, and and then superimpose graphics on top of it artificially. Uh, maybe put a like a birthday cake on your head or a, a squirrel on your shoulder or something like that, and and you know make funny pictures and send them to your friends, and they're they're uh, they're fun to share. Um, and one of these they're called filters that Snapchat created was called a speed filter. And you could, you know, take a picture of yourself and the same thing, it would pop up a graphic on there. Uh, And in this case, it would be the current rate of speed when you took the picture. And so I I guess it'd be designed you, um, you know, you're on a roller coaster or something, you're you're having a good time and you take a picture of yourself screaming and you show off to your friends. I was, I was going 90 miles an hour on this roller coaster. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, uh, all good fun. Uh, but, but of course, as teenagers do, they, they took this and made the worst use of it or the most dangerous use of it and ended up causing a lot of car accidents. You know, they'd be showing off to their friends about how fast they could drive their car, take a selfie and end up killing the, themselves, their friends, sometimes pedestrians. And when some victims brought lawsuits against Snapchat, um, alleging negligence and, and product defect claims, um, they didn't get to to even have their the viability of their assertions tested under negligence or product liability law in some cases because the Snapchat would say, "Well, we're not we're not making a product, or, or if we are making a product, uh, what we're doing is relaying communications. If people are taking pictures and sending them around, um, we're we're an intermediary under Section 230, so you can't sue us for negligence or, or product liability." And some courts bought that uh, and said, "Okay, yeah, you know, even if you did negligently design this thing, you're you're an intermediary, so you're immune." And my my point in my article isn't that Snapchat should be liable. You know, we've had speedometers for a long time. We have have things like this. I, I don't think they're unreasonably dangerous. But my point is that we're using the wrong test when we ask uh, whether a third party authored content, and if they did, the entity is immune. That's that's just not the right test for a product liability action. 
Um, and, and so that, that's an example of where I see uh, a disconnect created by Section 230 between the virtual world and the physical world. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit more about why you would see this particular example as better characterized as product liability rather than better characterized as speech content or content moderation. Yeah, so that is the the key aim of 230. And so trying to disentangle those two things is exactly how I think we should get at the question of, of whether 230 applies. So when you think about 230, what it was designed to do is to keep entities like Facebook from needing to review a mass of content and try to find false statements or other unlawful material in there. They're, they're getting better at it. Uh, they're they're uh, doing a lot better job than they were able to historically because of uh, machine learning and other technologies they can employ to do this. But it's still, uh, there's no way they could possibly uh, actually identify all of the problematic content and pull it out. And so Section 230 says, no, you don't have to do that. We, we couldn't reasonably expect you to, and you don't have to. Um, so that's what 230 is for. And I think the way to distinguish the two types of, of activity, you know, uh, um, activity that should be protected, entities should be protected for engaging in versus activity that they should be subject to the ordinary laws for, is to look at whether the cause of action um, would require content moderation to avoid the harm. And so the Snapchat case is particularly good because I think it, it brings this to the fore. Uh, in the claim against Snapchat, the plaintiff uh, wasn't alleging, oh, Snapchat, you should have looked through all of the snaps in real time and intercepted any ones that had teenagers speeding. Um, that, that would not be possible. You just couldn't do that. Um, but what the plaintiffs were saying instead is, no, Snapchat, you, you shouldn't have made an app that was this dangerous. It should have been designed differently to have maybe a speed limit cap, to have warnings about you know not using it while you're driving and, and things like this. They weren't saying that you should have moderated user content. They were saying you designed an, an unsafe product. Um, and just because it's an online product doesn't mean it, it's not subject to those same rules. Um, and so that's how I propose in my paper, reforming 230 to, to make um, whether the cause of action would would uh, impose a content moderation burden. I want that to be the question rather than just the question of whether a third party authored content related to the, the harm. Well, so what kind of change would that require? I mean, would there need to be an actual revision of the text of Section 230? So in my paper, I, I do focus on revising the text. I think from a theoretical perspective, that's the cleanest way to think about it is just to think about a new set of text. But I think it, it could be done other ways and courts could begin to move in this direction, even without uh, an, a, you know, a formal full amendment from Congress. And they could do it by tinkering with some of the, the flexible points of 230. Um, 230 allows or provides for liability for entities that are responsible uh, in whole or in part for the creation of content. Uh, and, and so you might, um, in this hasn't been how the courts have historically interpreted that language. Um, they've, they've recognized that entities may contribute to content, but have, have tended to be pretty, um, pretty narrow in that exception, uh, but they could broaden it. Uh, the, and, uh, they could say, well, Snapchat, if, if you, you know, created this app, you, you've essentially, uh, help to create the content. And so you're responsible for it too. 
uh, the courts could work within the existing body of case law um, to to move in this direction too. Well, so the kinds of changes that you propose, I mean, we talked about how they might affect a company like Snapchat. How might they affect companies that we might think of as more kind of paradigmatic e-commerce companies like Amazon or eBay or any other kind of like shopping website? So I think it could affect uh, those to an extent um, because you, you do have um, you do have a problem not just with with uh, um, product defects but also online marketplaces can um, can get some advantage over their physical world counterparts um, and, and as I briefly alluded to earlier, part of the problem is that they can they can act. Uh, as if they're they're uh, or argue that they're just an intermediary connecting buyers and sellers when really they're getting pretty close to selling unlawful goods and services, um, and so the the biggest example of this the, the most famous example is uh, the website Backpage dot com, um, and what they were doing this was uh, back a few years ago there was a big case on this um, they were hosting. Um, escort listings uh, with underage uh, underage women who had been caught in sex trafficking rings. Um, and they were um, hosting these ads created by third parties who, you know, the, the uh, people who were trafficking the women and they were able successfully before it was amended, they were able successfully to assert section 230 immunity on the ground that, Hey, we're just, uh, we're just hosting um, these ads we aren't we aren't the people who are selling the services. We're just we're just the host here, um, and that was so. Even though they were, um, there was evidence that they knew this to be the case uh, that they had been intentionally uh, uh, interfering with law enforcement efforts by removing geolocation data from images and things like that. Um, and, and so, um, you can get online marketplaces that. Um, that are able to assert Section 230 immunity, even though they're doing things that look a lot like selling illegal goods and services. Um, for somebody like Amazon, they have attempted to assert uh, product or ass- attempted to assert Section 230 immunity from product liability uh, cases. They have been largely unsuccessful in doing that, and I, I think courts have gotten that right. And so, because uh, Amazon has been unsuccessful. Um, the changes that I argue for to 230 would, would actually not change uh, the state of law uh, as far as product liability against uh, marketplaces like Amazon go. So to the extent that there's a kind of a big picture debate about 230, do you think some of the people arguing for reform in other areas would be sympathetic to, opposed to, or maybe even indifferent to some of the kinds of changes that you're suggesting. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'd of course like to think that everybody would love the idea, uh, but, but uh, there is a lot of resistance. And, and I think the reason for it, it, even though my proposal is fairly conservative, it's not a, a huge change to 230 to move it, to focus on, on the content moderation burden, but uh, folks who, who are in the tech industry are, are very nervous about changes to this law because if you change it in the wrong way, you know, if you're not careful about how you change it, it could do a, a lot of harm. Um, and, and so I think that folks who, who kind of take the time to 
to uh, think about it are, are more open to the sorts of changes that I'm suggesting than to sweeping 230 reform. But there's this natural tendency to be nervous just because the law is so very important. And I think that's fair. Um, you know, you, you change a big law, you want to be careful about how you do it. Do you think there are any reasons to be concerned about the dichotomy or the kind of redefinition of the application of Section 230 that you're proposing? I mean, are there reasons to think that maybe the kinds of quasi-product liability actions that you think ought to be permitted might kind of leach over into the content moderation sphere? Or do you think that the dividing line is sufficiently clear that we shouldn't necessarily need to worry about that? I think there there are going to be borderline cases, and so I, I th- actually think that what I'm proposing would would work a lot like what we have now. Uh, so under current Section 230 doctrine, online entities are immune uh, unless they they kind of materially contribute to the creation of the content, and whether or not an entity materially contributes to the creation of content, well, that's that's usually pretty clear. You know, usually either an entity authored content or it didn't, but you you can get kind of borderline cases. And there was a the most famous case of this is a a, a Fair Housing Act claim against the website roommates dot com um, that that was alleged to be violating the Fair Housing Act by hosting ads for rentals that um, that were you know blatantly discriminatory, lo- looking for uh, roommates of certain races and things like that. And the court found uh, that they did not qualify for Section 230 immunity because they had created drop-down boxes specifically asking for this sort of information. And so the idea was, well, if you're going to go and do that, then then you kind of have created this content. I mean, so that's a, a murky case. And I think with with the test that I propose, looking at content moderation, you, you're going to get the same sort of murky cases where sometimes it's not really clear uh, whether um, whether a cause of action would require content moderation or whether it wouldn't, but I think by and large uh, the cases could be resolved uh, often, you know, pre-trial at, at a summary judgment or motion to dismiss. Just like is the case under current law, you know, most of these cases or most of the um, defenses do get resolved uh, long before trial. And I I attempt with this solution to keep that the same because it is important to keep the litigation costs down for this, or it it becomes not a useful defense. So Gregory, in closing, I, I wonder if you could kind of speculate on the likelihood of your proposal or something similar to it being implemented either through legislation or through sort of judicial changes in the interpretation of 230. Or do you see this as like in part kind of a like a think piece? So I think we can actually start to see the writing on the wall here. There are just so many people moving uh, in the direction of change that it's hard to see the current regime, you know, exactly as it is now, staying in place for for you know five more years even, um, because you have Congress, Republicans, Democrats, they they don't agree exactly about what they want to change, um, but they're they're both mad. Um, and, and that makes you think there might be some sort of compromise as there was a, a few years ago with the FOSTA amendment to 230 in response to the, the backpage.com decision. I think they'll come together again. Um, and even if nothing happens in Congress, uh, you have, uh, the, the FCC is now, um, looking at, at potential rulemaking to, uh, 
to change uh, how 230 is interpreted. And you also had a, a very interesting statement uh, by Justice Thomas uh, in, a, in the Malwarebytes decision in the Supreme Court uh, maybe a month ago now, where he, he was suggesting that it might be time for the Supreme Court to step in, which interestingly, the, the Supreme Court has never issued a, an opinion interpreting 230. And so that would be a, a very quick way to really dramatically alter the landscape um, in this area. And I think uh, I can't predict where it's going to come from, but given the level of displeasure with 230 and, and the, um, the big changes we've seen in the internet since 1996, when this was enacted, I, I think it's, it's uh, fairly certain that change will come in the next few years. Well, Gregory, thanks so much for coming on the program and discussing your excellent and timely paper. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been uh, great chatting with you. I love talking about this stuff. So anytime.